Yes, hello there. My name is Leo Jai. I'm a urology consultant from uh, the Royal Free Hospital in England. And on behalf of the Endourology Society and the Journal of Endourology, through the Open Channel, I welcome this podcast sponsored by Cook Medical to discuss education during the COVID crisis. I have two esteemed colleagues with me. I have Dr. Stefania uh, Ferretti, who's the Chief of Endourology at the University of Parma Hospital in Italy. I also have Dr. Edward Matsumoto, who's the Director of Minimal Invasive Surgery at McMaster's University in Toronto, Canada. Can I welcome you both to this uh, uh, open channel uh, podcast? Thank you. Thank you. Today we're talking about education during this pandemic. We've all had, we've all had challenging times, but I, both you're, I hope you're both okay. You're doing well uh, during these challenging times. We are doing well. Thank you very much. Excellent. We're talking really about the impact of uh, the COVID on training. And uh, Dr. Matsumoto, can you just tell me, give me a brief summary of what a, a trainee, uh, how many years it takes for a trainee to become a certified uh, urologist in Canada? So we obviously have all kinds of systems in the world when it comes to the uh, medical training. And uh, Canada does not have a direct entry program. Uh, meaning that uh, once uh, a student graduates from high school, uh, they often enter a, uh, an undergraduate program. Uh, so after four years, they're able to uh, apply to a medical school. And of course, all the positions are, are uh, government controlled. So we have very limited number of spots. Uh, so it's very competitive. So very often, in addition to those four years, uh, a lot of our medical school students already have uh, graduate degrees. So they have uh, furthered their education and uh, their competitive edge by doing a master's degrees and PhD. So by the time they hit a, a surgical residency, such as urology, um, many of our many of our uh, residents have very mature families. So this this could certainly uh, have an impact uh, on on their um, on their lifestyle, uh, on, on what they could do. And certainly COVID has been a major challenge for some of our, our residents in our program because of this. That must be a really interesting um, issue, really. The fact you have mature residents and the impact on that, as you rightfully said, is an in- interesting problem. And we'll, we'll touch on that in a short while. Dr. Peretti, can you just update me what the program is in Italy, how long it takes to be a fully-fledged urologist? Yes, sure. Uh, the specialty training program in Italy is a long uh, five years. It starts after a completion of School of Medicine. And uh, currently, the selection process is national. Each candidate is assigned to each university based on a national ranking and preferences expressed by the candidate. Each university has a, a network of hospitals where trainees can rotate. And during these five years, it's possible to pass a different uh, hospital. At uh, the end of every year, trainees have to attend a proficiency exam and the program varies Every, every year and, and uh, it will cover all urology field at the end of the 50 years. Okay, so thank you very much. So it's quite interesting, the diversity, the diversity in training from all over the world. Just out of interest, I mean, in the UK, as a result of the COVID, we stopped all elective surgery and we were essentially redeployed to working in ITU. Dr. Matsumoto, did you, was a similar experience in Canada or were you able to function at, at, during the, the peak of the pandemic? 
you know, we, we had a, a very similar hard shutdown as I would uh, uh, describe it as, uh, you know, during the first wave uh, last year, you know, in the, in the spring. And then more recently, I guess we would call it the third wave of, from, you know, from April to present, uh, where um, most of the, the provincial governments put a, uh, a hard stop to uh, what's considered elective surgeries. So this, this certainly had an impact on urology where many of the surgery, many cases that we do are, are deemed elective, you know, um, you know, for instance, management of uh, BPH and retention, you know, things like TERPs and green lights. These were all uh, unfortunately deemed elective and canceled. So uh, it was a real challenge, you know, you know, running it, uh, you know, running a clinical practice, dealing with all these uh, uh, issues. So yes, it's had a significant impact on clinical practice and, of course, on the education as well. Yes, I mean that that's a real problem, isn't it, Dr. Ferretti? Was your experience similar in Italy, or were you able to function during the the peak of the pandemic? Yes, it's, it was quite similar because the last year we stopped the elective activity from March 2020 to June 2020. And we perform only oncological surgery and some uh, endoscopic procedure, but we worked a lot in emergency. Uh, so the problem, uh, for example, the, the retroscopy in emergency, stenting, uh, urethral stenting in emergency, and so on. Then. Uh, when arrived the, the second wave, uh, and I mean uh, in, at about October, on October the last year, uh, we were at, uh, at about 60% of uh, normal urological surgery activity. And we have to wait uh, since uh, this February uh, since uh, we have resumed about uh, the 90 percent of our activities since uh, this February. Well, so, that, that's really that's really good, though, to, to be able to resume 90 percent of our activity is is yeah. work and must be quite quite a challenge. I'd just like to pick you up on a couple of things you mentioned. I'd be interested, Dr. Matsumoto's uh, intake on that. The fact that you know doing primary ureteroscopy, emergency ureteroscopy, uh, emergency lithotripsy. Would you find, Dr. Matsumoto, that your pathway changed? Uh, you've had to uh, change your guidelines and your pathway based on COVID in order to try and get patients treated? Or have you managed to keep your normal pathways during this time? No, there, there's definitely a certain amount of uh, adaptation that was necessary in order to deal with our, our stone population. But once again, it, it was uh, it was it was uh, it was unfortunate for the patient. So unless you you present it with acute obstruction, uh, and the hospitals are very clear that patients had to have an obstructing whatever imaging, CT, ultrasound, hydrogen the stone. Those were the only patients that we could take to the OR. If it was you know, kind of an elective, you know, eight millimeter stone midpole non-obstructing, uh, that was a no-go. Shockwave lithotripsy, that was a no-go. So unless it was acute, you know, i.e. septic stone, we're very limited uh, on what, uh, how we can manage our endurology practice. Uh, so once again, very challenging times. And uh, needless to say, our, our wait times have increased significantly. And we already have significant wait times in Canada, you know, as you, as you may be aware, you know, with a single-payer system, uh, there's certainly a, a greater wait. And uh, this certainly did not help uh, the situation. Yes, it's interesting you talk about the fact that uh, some stones uh, you were treating, you were able to offer primary ureteroscopy on. 
uh, in the UK and some of the uh, British guidelines and to an extent European guidelines suggested we use lithotripsy in an effort to avoid taking the patients to the OR. Dr. Ferretti, was that your experience at all? Did you find you were doing more lithotripsy or were you able to access theatre to do primary ureteroscopy when a patient presented with an obstructed stone? I, you know, when it's clinically indicated, obviously they were septic, you didn't do this, but if it's possible, could you, or did you have an increase in use of lithotripsy during the pandemic? Yes, in fact, during the pandemic is the patient was not, of course, septic. We, we started with the uh, lithotripsy in situ because it's better to, to remove. So we performed a lot of ureteroscopy in emergency, and, and, but also, also a lot of stenting. We put a lot of stent during the pandemic period because the patient had to manage in, in emergency. Uh, I noted also um, a lot of encrusted, encrusted stents during this I was period. about to say, I was going to say, you know, if you put in a lot of stents, this is a big risk for everybody. So, uh, yeah, sorry. Yes, because probably owing to the, 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 the COVID, the fear of the COVID, patients don't come to the hospital and they waiting uh, more than one year because uh, before COVID, we have some patients uh, were waiting for the elective surgery, but then they were lost, of course. Yeah, I mean, the stenting was a real anxiety. Uh, Dr. Matsumoto, what was your experience with stents? Were you keen to put stents in during this time? Were you comfortable in certain stents? Or did you offer treatment whenever possible? Yeah, I mean, like I said, if they're obstructed and it's a non-septic uh, scenario, yeah, we would we would treat with primary ureteroscopy, and once again, we were permitted to do that. Uh, and obviously, uh, a septic stone, uh, we we did stent. Um, you know, those unfortunately that occurred earlier in each of the waves uh, had to uh, live with the stent, uh, you know, a little bit longer. So end up being you know six, eight weeks, even twelve weeks with a stent. And uh, uh, we have had a few patients within cross stent. So there's definitely been some uh, more morbidity associated with the delays in managing yeah. stented patients and quality quality of life uh, issues yeah. as well too. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Some consequences. Now let's just focus a bit on our trainees. You know, in your institution, we were all redeployed in the UK. Were your trainees redeployed at all, Dr. Matsumoto? Did you have to send them to ITU uh, to help with the COVID response? Uh, we did. You know, I mean, we received uh, directives from the, the government itself, the provincial government, basically saying that, uh, you know, th- this was uh, a state of an emergency, so to speak. And uh, they had the power to direct all staff. So uh, no longer were we protected by, you know, union rules for the for the trainees and the residents. Uh, this was a different situation. So uh, we really had no control over this. So uh, many of our residents were deployed, redeployed to uh, different areas. So intensive care, as you mentioned, was one of those areas, uh, emergency uh, medicine wards. Fortunately, it did not work its way up to the staff or the faculty level or the consultant level. It would have been interesting, you know, me in the eye ICU. I haven't been there in about <laughs> 20 years. Yes. So there's no yes. question. We, 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 you know, those in trainees, you know, you know, first year, second year residents, 
uh, that just came off uh, of the intensive care rotations were kind of our, our front line or first choice to yeah. move in there. So, you know, fortunately, it worked out well. It, uh, you know, we had enough learners to uh, kind of man all these uh, various positions. We were fortunate. Excellent. Well, that's most fortunate. Uh, Dr. Ferretti in Parma in Italy, um, were, your, were your residents uh, redeployed into other areas? Uh, generally speaking, uh, our residents were kept as more uh, as possible in urology wards and not involved in COVID department. Different from, of course, uh, other residents, uh, for example, in internal medicine and so on. But our residents uh, were kept uh, in uh, in the ward, in principal ward. In some cases, uh, some university decided to deactivate um, for a period uh, their network with the other hospital and uh, uh, claim trainees back to the main site. And okay. this caused um, a concentration of trainees in the single center and probably leading a deterioration of the quality of the education because all the residents uh, were coming yeah, in were elsewhere. That, 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 that not, certainly would have not been. In my, not in my experience because we have, um, as you know, in this particular moment, only one trainee is so okay. it's very, very good for him. Of course. Yes, you know, this is the other thing I was going to highlight about the fact that uh, the residents sometimes had more experience in doing more uh, complex work uh, than previously. But I'd be interested to get a steer from uh, Dr. Matsumoto whether or not uh, you felt um, your trainees were in any way affected by this COVID issue. In the UK, we have a training program whereby we talk about indicative numbers, how many cases of ureteroscopies or PCNLs they have to do. And obviously during COVID, they haven't been able to achieve those numbers. I wonder what things are like in Canada and how is it you're finding a way to work around this? Uh, excellent question. Um, you know, quite recently, uh, approximately uh, three years ago, uh, the uh, Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada transition to a completely different uh, way of assessment uh, accreditation uh, it, was, it was more of a, it was a, a competence-based uh, program so it's called CBD or competence by design uh, and uh, because of that it did a combination of you said kind of a log of certain number of, uh, of index cases that you had to do and around it uh, there were milestones so it was a as a combination of quantity but more importantly it was, it was a quality. So, uh, you know, you may only be expected to do maybe um, assessed on maybe 20 to 30 cystoscopies or uh, maybe even uh, 10 pelvic surgeries as a, as a, as a final year resident. Uh, but, uh, you know, you may have a number of fails in between there based on the assessment of each of the, uh, uh, the procedures, the index procedures. Uh, so um, because of that, you know, we had a chance of, of, of opportunity to continue monitoring, uh, number one, the number of cases, but number two is is the involvement and of course the performance. Uh, yeah. So this is all this was all collected and and even during COVID, uh, you mean uh, you know we were able to collect this data, but there was no question if you go back and look at the data, 
the number of cases had dropped significantly, probably about 60 to 80 percent, which makes That's quite sense. significant. It's quite significant. Yes. Uh, so then now the challenge is going to be, you know, how do we how do we catch some of these residents up, I mean, especially those who are seniors that have you know, very limited time left? It's going yes. to be real it's going to be tough. We'll talk. We'll touch base on that. This, this is a very relevant thing you've mentioned, Dr. Matsumoto, but we'll touch base on that. In Italy, do you work on in, indicative numbers? Do they have to do X amount of ureteroscopies or PNLs, PCNLs, uh, before you sign them off? Yes. Um, at the end of the training, each uh, university has to guarantee a minimum uh, amount of the procedure. For example, for our trainees, uh, they have to perform, but along the five years, uh, uh, 50 ureteroscopy, 100 of uh, resection of the bladder, or okay. 50 QRP for the program. Yeah. Of course, in the last year, in the last, uh, during COVID, the COVID era, there was uh, a reduce of this opportunity. And um, of course, uh, we have now, we have to run for uh, um, in, in, improve uh, the, the, the number of the procedures. So, I mean, in the UK, we thank you for that, Dr. Ferretti. In the UK, the NHS have come up with this terminology, accelerated recovery program, mm -hmm. um, which involves us working evenings and weekends, Saturday and Sunday included, running clinics and running operating. Uh, Dr. Matsumoto, do you have to do any of this at all in Canada? Is this part of it in an effort to improve train, get your trainees' numbers up? And does the consultants have to do uh, Saturdays, Sundays in an effort to try and catch up? I'm interested to get your thoughts on that, Dr. Matsumoto. Uh, yes, the uh, you know the uh, the Ministry of Health, the governments have made an effort to uh, you know provide extra funds to the hospital to catch up uh, as you as you described it as. Um, so from a clinical perspective, uh, there 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 has been um, a push towards getting extra case done, and you and you're absolutely right; it does tend to happen on the weekends. Um, um, so uh, we do see that. How does that impact the, the training experience? Well, I mean, there's, there's no question that the, the case logs uh, will increase, but at the same time, then we're creeping into, you know, the learner's uh, personal times. And quite, quite honestly, you know, you know, we kind of get into the personal times of the faculty as well. So it's a real challenge. I mean, do you mandate that the residents come to the, uh, to the ORs to help with the case? You know, we've kind of taken a stance that it becomes optional, you know, because they still have a long work week. And then for them to try and come in and do extra case on the weekend, it's a real challenge. And, and we, we, we left it as an option. And we, we have fellows and, and, and the fellows... Uh, tend to come and says, you know, for instance, you know, prostatectomies, bedside robotics, uh, they'll come in and do those cases. Um, so we, we've had to learn to adapt, but uh, it's been a, it's a fine balance. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're increasing our numbers, but it's, it's kind of inconvenient times. And I think it's very important to keep in mind, uh, you know, the, and be respectful of the trainees' uh, personal time as well. Right. It's, it's really reassuring to hear your approach, Dr. Martin. It's very pragmatic. You know, our trainees are exhausted. Uh, a lot of them haven't taken annual leave because of the pandemic. Uh, they've been redeployed doing things they're not used to. And now that we're coming out of the surge, we ask them to work, perhaps get involved with training at the weekend. So I quite like the approach you, you've adopted in your hospital uh, because it does give them the options uh, rather than being mandatory. Uh, Dr. Ferretti, what's your um, take on that? The fact that, um, you know, I don't know whether you're having to do additional 
work at weekends to try and catch up or in the evenings? No, no. In Italy, we try to to maintain free the weekend for uh, the very important. Yes, <laughs> for the Chinese. Very, very important. This is why this is why That's Italy has such a good quality of life. <laughs> yes, but the policy of our hospital, of my hospital, is um, we have two little hospital in the countryside where we go one week, one day a week. And so we have to maintain um, a volume of surgery, but during the week, not on weekend. And so our residents, one day a week has the possibility to go to this little hospital in the countryside and perform day surgeries, procedures, okay. and uh, diagnostics, cystoscopy, shockwave, and so on. Okay. I mean, just to move, move the topic on a little, one of the issues we found, I mean, we're used to being present at various international meetings where you are, you get to, you look, look at new technology, you're keeping up with colleagues, you're sharing ideas, new innovations. Obviously, during the pandemic, this hasn't happened. How do you think this has impacted on training, um, Dr. Matsumoto? I think it's impacted training, you know, on several levels. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, the, uh, you know, for, for residents, you know, I think one of the competencies that they should develop during their training program is, you know, communication skills and presentation mm -hmm. skills. So, you know, being able to present in front of a large group, you know, your studies and data, you know, yes. being able to uh, respond to questions, I think it's such an important skill. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and, I, and I feel over the last uh, year, year and a half now, uh, we've, we've lost out on this opportunity. Now, having said that, you know, we have the virtual performance. I mean, it, it's not the same. It's just definitely not yeah. the same. So I think that's what's one area that we missed out on. And I think the other big thing is is the network, and I think we all miss this. You know, ability to network with your with your colleagues at these various international meetings. You know, cross pollination. I, I I like I like you know using that term where you get a chance to kind of uh, mingle with others and get ideas for studies and collaborate. Uh, I mean, we we you know the virtual meetings you really miss out on that experience. Yes, and it's a real problem, isn't it? Dr. Ferretti, what's your view? Do you miss not leaving Italy often to go to international meetings, or are you very comfortable and happy staying in, uh, in Parma? No, of course, uh, there, there was a reduction in this opportunity. Uh, but, uh, <clears throat> of course, uh, we, we are waiting to, to do to in, uh, in real time at the international meeting. So it's very important to, to have the possibility to speak with colleagues and to, to see everything is possible and to learn. During the last year, we, we have observed a high volume of uh, webinar organized mm -hmm. and also for our trainees. And uh, there's a, a lot of events also uh, guaranteed by the farm company. And uh, also, for example, in Italy, I don't know if the same in UK, in UK and, um, and I know some group also in the United States, there is a, a no-profit consortium of doctors uh, with the aim of uh, promoting education and training in specific subfields. So there was in this period a lot of uh, these events 
and uh, during the the pandemic uh, the pandemic uh, uh, way sorry yes. but i have lost just a, a moment uh, the image of the zoom okay so it's interesting you, you you talk about the effects of it and there are lots of webinars lots of zoom uh, which is great um, but how have you managed to supplement education locally dr Matsumoto? what have you, what have you what have you done for your your residents in terms of making sure their academic, uh, your journal clubs, your academic forums are maintained? So, you know, we obviously had to uh, adapt and uh, we did utilize uh, virtual platforms, so i.e. Zoom. Uh, and, uh, we, and we have a, a part of our teaching curriculum, we have some called urology school. So the residents have a, a half day of protect time every week. Um, so during those sessions, we just moved to a virtual platform. So that, that worked out quite well. Uh, so uh, that was a very smooth transition. Do you, think you're, do you think you're going to keep the virtual platform? Does that module work for, for, your, for your team? I would say it does. Um, I mean, it certainly Im improves faculty participation uh, because, you know, we yeah. have multiple, you know, it's always a challenge, you know, getting uh, faculty to do the teaching sessions, you know, busy schedules. So absolutely don't require the faculty come to us like a, 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 the teaching center or the, you know, the theater conference. Uh, it, it does make it more, it does make it easier. It facilitates things. So I, I think in that sense, that's very useful. Um, uh, but once again, it, it is that interaction, you know, the the side banters that you you do learn, and Absolutely. you know, takes on those tangents, and you do miss out on that. And same with same with journal clubs, uh, you know, we went to a virtual platform. Usually, I mean, that's once again in the evenings on a personal time. So we we you know, most journal clubs are around a nice dinner, you know, and a glass of wine. Um, so we kind of miss out on that. And a grand round, same thing, you know, uh, yeah. we, we, we've lost out on all that experience. So uh, I, I suspect certain things may stay uh, virtually, um, but I think uh, I like to see other venues become live again. Yes, I think we'll probably end up having a, a, a blend uh, yeah. with time. Yeah. Like you rightfully say, the virtual uh, platform work for, for consultants who are busy elsewhere who are not necessarily in one uh, co-located in one area uh, at a specific time, so they can come in and and join an hour's education whilst driving the kids to school or or something, so they can get involved. So that's quite useful. Uh, Dr. Ferretti, what have, in, in Parma, what have you done in Italy um, for your residents, for example, uh, to make sure the educational needs are met? Yes, <clears throat> I, uh, in Parma, in Italy. Um, we have uh, uh, see in this moment a lot of uh, online events that um, have helped to maintain an adequate volume of uh, educational events, in particular for trainees. But I think that is not uh, to be the future. It's necessary. It's necessary to have a face-to-face. Uh, a frontal lesson, lessons, and so on. So I think that in this particular moment, the the possibility to have an adequate educational on web, it is a very good uh, opportunity. But if not for the future, of course, is necessary to to come back to the, the, the possibility to attend the events, the lessons, and so on, if I okay. understand the, 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 the answer. That's very helpful. Thank you. Dr. Matsumoto, 
I, have your, I need your stare on something, Em. Do you, would you say uh, there's some element of burnout uh, amongst residents with the amount of online content that we have for teaching and training in, in the last 12 months? I mean, there's been a, a complete explosion of them. There are pros and cons to them. I just wanted to get a stare from you whether you think we're a bit saturated with the online webinars that's available right now. Uh, there's no question. I think we're all suffering from from uh, webinar and Zoom uh, a burnout, so to speak, uh, whether you're a consultant, a faculty, staff surgeon, right all the way down to the trainees. Uh, you know, we, you, you look at your emails and you're just constantly bombarded with uh, uh, learning opportunities. So, yeah, there, there's definitely a burnout factor. Uh, and once again, it starts creeping into your personal time um, for all of us. You mean, you look at some of these meetings, you're no longer there on their local time. So, you know, like this, these, you know, these, this podcast that we're creating right now, everyone's at different time so So, if you want to join live, then it could be an issue. So yeah, there's 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 great burnout from this, um, and uh, and it's going to impact learning as well. But having said that, you know we're dealing with trainees that are of a generation where they're 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 used to social media, they're they're used to a very you know virtual platforms. Um, so in that sense, I mean, for some residents, it's probably not a major issue. Yeah. I think for older folks like myself, uh, it's it's a real challenge. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. <laughs> well, Fred, your your view on that, please. It's interesting. Yes, uh, it's the same. It's the same as uh, say yeah. beforehand, yes. because uh, there is there is very a lot a lot of uh, events, webinar events, and uh, it's uh, it's very simple to go to go burn out, but on, not only for the residents, also for consultant, because there is a lot of, um, of uh, these events, uh, these webinars. So we have to take time. Now is the, the moment to relax and to take time for us, not on every day, a webinar every day, a Zoom every day, because now it's very easy to attend this event because you have not to go on work, you have not to go to the other uh, city and so on. So there was a, an explosion of this yeah. sort. There certainly was. was. Uh, it's also interesting to see how the medical devices company, who we've all worked very closely with over the years, uh, how what kind of value they bring into us now as we recover and in the future. Um, you know, new technologies to help us to be able to continue to offer training, um, you know, education. And as we transition really out of this forum, I just wonder whether either of you have any thoughts on ways where you would like to, you're both opinion leaders in what you do. How do you see us in future uh, being able to continue to, to educate, not just locally, nationally, and internationally. Your thoughts on that, please. Yeah. So, you mean, uh, you mean, I, I think as endourologists, we've always had a, a great working relationship uh, with with industry, and I think that's achieved a lot of uh, innovations and technologies and instruments. So, I think urologists are already well known for this, uh, and uh, with our relationship, you mean, I think uh, we can utilize that to help support our our trainees and. Uh, I'll, you know, one of our experience in, in Canada, uh, at least at our, our university, was that we developed what's called a boot camp, which is, uh, and, it, and it ties in very well with a competence-based uh, uh, system, 
where we're taking uh, the PGY1s of the first year residents and expose them to basic skills. Like just like the military, you know, you got to learn how to shoot a gun. Well, you got to learn how to put uh, a cystoscope. <laughs> you know, the basic things that, you know, could otherwise eat up time in the OR in the theater. Uh, you know, yeah. we're, we're teaching yes. time. So there's that acceleration of learning. So once again, you're, you're utilizing the, the valuable OR time for the actual procedure rather than, you know, the, uh, the assembly stuff. So, you know, super pubic tube insertions, you know, assembly catheters, flexible cystoscopy. And we're all doing this, but we, we compact this into a boot camp. And industry has been very supportive, donating instruments, equipments, the scopes, the baskets. Uh, it's, been, it's been a wonderful relationship. So this has been very valuable. And I think, you know, this year, in the last year and a half, this has been very valuable for our trainees having this boot camp, especially when, you know, time in the OR has been limited. You know, for instance, our wars, we, we could not have more than one learner because of the shortage of PPE. So that yeah, was so I think if you could do, like I said, if you could utilize, you know, virtual labs, sim labs, you know, boot camps, I think it, there's opportunities here, obviously in the future to really improve, you know, the, the education for uh, surgical residents. Yeah, that, that's excellent. Thank you for those responses. Those are really good concepts you've, you've put together. Dr. Ferretti, any thoughts on now and future, how you continue to maintain um, teaching and training, how you continue to, to pass on the skills that you've learned over the years to your residents nationally and also internationally. Yes, uh, I think that uh, this is a moment uh, where the possibility to, to perform uh, a trainee's uh, on a virtual way, on platform, or also um, the possibility um, for a live surgery broadcast and so on could be a possible for the future and uh, it's very important for the trainees. Yes. So I, I agree with this opportunity coming also from the company and so on. I think we need to work, continue to work closely with them. Uh, for example, Cook Medical do this uh, mechanism called the, uh, the Vista OR1, which allows live surgical broadcast uh, so people can log in wherever they are in the world to a certain part of the operation. I think that has this appeal. So you don't necessarily have to sign up for a webinar. You can just join in. Uh, Dr. Matsumoto, I think you mentioned this previously. You could just join in for 10 minutes, uh, watch a, 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 you know, someone dissect the hilum in a, a, uh, a robotic case or somebody uh, do, doing a percutaneous track uh, in a complex case. So I think there is an opportunity for us to keep the platform that's ongoing now, but perhaps refine it so that you can just get the information you want from it. There's nothing like watching another colleague operate. You learn from it always. <laughs> so yeah. having been able to log into that and, and, and take that on board, I think is useful. As we're coming towards the end of this uh, podcast, I just wonder, Dr. Matsumoto, whether you have any summary for me, any thoughts that you, you might want to share with, uh, with residents worldwide, not just in Canada. Well, I mean, this this has been, a, 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 you know, hopefully a once in a lifetime uh, experience that we all had to endure. Um, but uh, I mean, I think uh, I think there's been some good that has uh, come out of this as well. I mean, I think this, you know, ability to move to virtual platforms for 
education, teaching, communication, conferences was quite remarkable. So I think there's going to be, uh, as you said before, a few things that we'll take away from its experience and maybe continue on as, as part of our teaching tools. I think our world is heading towards the end of these uh, waves and uh, we will be able to return to some normalcy. And uh, yeah, I wish everyone the best. Thank you. Thank you very much for your kind words there. Dr. Freti, any last words from you, please? About the, the problem of uh, the teaching? Yes, uh, just, a, just a synopsis of what your thoughts are uh, for, the, you know, for our residents go for now and also uh, moving I into think, the future. I, I hope, uh, as I had said before, to come back to the normally, the normal time during before COVID, of course, because um, I need... Um, I need to to speak with residents. I need to uh, to have the contact because the human being is the contact who have the necessity and also the possibility to uh, explain the procedure, to see the trips and tricks during the procedure. These are moments that is not possible to transmit on webinar, on platform. So this, uh, um, my wish is to come back to the um, teaching in uh, live, in surgery, in uh, operating room with our residents. This is uh, my uh, wishes for the future, to come back to the normality. But I think that, uh, as I said before, the possibility to teaching uh, on uh, webinar, on live surgery, broadcasting and so on, it, it, uh, it, um, it is a, a very tools, a very important tools for education. Thank you very much. We've come towards the end of this. So this is an open channel discussing the effect of the residency education uh, during the COVID pandemic. And on behalf of the Endo-Urology Society, I would like to thank the faculty, uh, Dr. Stefania Ferretti from Parma, Italy, Dr. Edward Matsumoto from McMaster's University in Toronto, Canada, for participating in this highly educational and informative podcast sponsored by Cook Medical. And I thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.